Harvey Carell is a professor of philosophy in Bristol. Um, her work and her interests and her research really is in pursuit of what the um, experience of illness is and what approaches we might bring uh, to think about it um, truthfully and to find language to understand it. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome back to Medicine Unboxed, Harvey Carell. <clears throat> When, um, when was it that you um, became unwell? Um, gosh, it's going back about 14 years now to a period when I was living in Australia, in Canberra, um, and was doing a lot of outdoor stuff and lots of hiking and running and going to the gym and swimming and so on. Um, and Canberra has a big artificial lake, which is actually incredibly inappropriate for a desert, but <laughs> with this lake, Burley Griffin, um, and we went, um, we went to the lake, and there was a little island maybe 50 meters in, and I remember kind of doing a few of the first kind of breaststrokes, and then thinking, oh my God, I can't breathe, I just can't breathe. Um, obviously, I ignored it, as one does, um, and then when we would go on sort of uh, hikes and stuff with friends, then every time there was an incline or gradient, I would just fall behind. And I got so angry with myself that I thought, okay, it's just, I'm just not trying hard enough. So went to the gym, signed up to kickboxing, workouts, uh, continued just ferociously exercising, and eventually had to kind of admit to myself that the more I exercised, the worse I got. Um, and it was all in between lots of other things that were happening, including coming back to the, to the UK. So when I came back in 2006, um, as you know, Bristol's very hilly, and I had my bike, and I was just desperately trying to get up this, not even very steep hill, this road that I just, I hate this road to this day. And I just remember thinking, okay, I've, I've, I've got to go to the, to the doctor. So I think I probably had increasing breathlessness, as my only symptom, which didn't help because lamb has other symptoms as well, um, maybe from 2003 onwards, and I was diagnosed in April 2006. So, <coughs> lamb, just say for us what that is. Okay, so lamb is lymphangiomyomatosis, <coughs> a conveniently named rare lung disease, which affects only women, so it's somehow estrogen driven in ways that are not quite understood, but we're uh, we all have to take a vow to kind of never eat any tofu and go any, anywhere near any of the oestrogen um, treatments uh, women have access to normally. Um, and what this disease does is um, you have one cell which has the dubious honour of uh, being the subject of what's called a two-hit mutation. So it mutates once uh, to lose the capacity to produce uh, a protein called tuberin, and then it mutates again. And I was very annoyed when I found out that the actual mutation is tiny. It only includes the dropping of one, uh, uh, one codon, one guanine sort of uh, codon. So it's a tiny mutation in one tiny cell, um, but it eventually over time progressively destroys the, uh, the, the lung tissue. And instead of lung tissue, you get these big cysts that are partly smooth muscle cells and um, partly just, just, just holes, not supposed to be there. 
Um, and when I was diagnosed, it was it was a well, it was a death sentence unless you were uh, willing to go down the lung transplant route. Nowadays, um, it, and but at the time I was diagnosed, they were trialing a. Um, a possible medication that could not reverse but slow down the progression of LAM, uh, which is a drug called rapamycin, which some of you may have heard of. Um, and I was one of two or three patients who were quietly taken aside in 2000 and, uh, late 2006 and said uh, and told, you know, you, you can take this off-label because we've got a hunch that it might help and you're desperately ill. Um, so by the time I started taking the drug, I was already also in parallel being assessed for a transplant, and that was 12 years ago. So I've lived for the past 12 years with probably about 17% of what kind of the rest of you have, which I'm very, very jealous of. And it's, it's um, I know it's not very apparent now, but walk with me to my car and you'll see, you'll see what I mean with sort of increasing uh, problems with, with mobility and, uh, and all the other uh, things associated with, with breathlessness. And when you, when you um, started to become aware, were you, when did your um, engagement academically or otherwise start with philosophy? Has that all been all your life? Well, I was, I, was, I was trained as a philosopher. <coughs> I did a PhD and I, um, I had my, actually my, my first permanent job in, in Canberra in Australia. Right. And I think when I was diagnosed, um, my overwhelming sense with philosophy was just one of disgust. I thought... What use is all that to me? All this alleged wisdom and all these like smart arguments and all these, you know, clever uh, logical treatments of, of problems. We've but heard prior to that, you'd been you'd been taken with that sphere of yeah, inquiry. Yeah, yeah, completely. And <clears> I, and I thought, well, um, if no philosophers are bothered to use philosophy to study the experience of illness, then I better do it. <laughs> but just what I just wanted to ask you a bit more about yeah. that. So prior to. Just well, let's talk about your interest in philosophy from the outset. Yeah. The, the pursuit of what rational, um, a rational way of interrogating the world, the logic, the excitement of it. What was the interest? What was the draw to philosophy? Well, oh, well, the draw was that here was a discipline that covered everything. Mm. Here was a discipline that dealt with ethics and aesthetics and politics and metaphysics. And ontology and religion and so on and and the, it's the it's the criticality of it it's the fact that everything is up for grabs is that philosophy is really practiced in the most undogmatic fashion where you just have to come up with good reasoning and yes. good arguments and it's very whatever the sphere of inquiry exactly yeah. so I thought well how come why doesn't philosophy talk about illness how come there's no that connection hasn't been hasn't been made and what, is that the case then? So when you, I'm sure you've looked at this in wide and great depth, but when you started to become symptomatic and then got your diagnosis, was it the case that you recognised actually there hasn't been any meaningful inquiry into the whole experience of illness? I started looking around and there was tons and tons and tons of stuff in the field that is called philosophy of medicine that has to do with definitions because philosophers love definitions and concepts and definitions and concepts are really important because they help us shape our ideas into you know stuff we can sort of work with so there was a raging debate about um, what the correct concept of disease or the best concept of disease might be but right. disease 
is the physiological dysfunction, diseases, what happens to your knee ligaments. And I was interested in the illness, which is the, the lived experience of, of that disease. And there was, there was very little, with the exception of um, the work of S.K. Toombs, who's a, a now retired uh, a philosopher in the US who had multiple sclerosis. And I think was similarly, um, in the early uh, 1980s, similarly kind of driven to, to, to explore that experience using the philosophy. So almost, uh, you know, the approach appeared to be, how do we name things and, you know, inquire about what they are, rather than understanding what they, f what they feel like, what the experience of them is? Yes, but I think, that, I think there's a bit of both. I think the problem with, uh, at least the way my diagnosis was handed down to me, is that it was handed down as a given thing. Um, and I was, I was actually, in, in hindsight, I'm, I was actually quite shocked by how confident the physicians were given how little was known about <coughs> LAM. Um, so um, they said, this is what you have. You have cysts in your lungs. But that didn't translate into the actual experience I had of, of falling behind on trips, of uh, feeling very, um, very alone, of uh, having this breathlessness kind of overtake your existence in, in various ways. Um, and of the, the deep conviction I had that this breathlessness I was experiencing was misnamed because it's nothing like the kind of breathlessness you might experience if you're running for the bus or if you're working out at the gym. It was just a, it, it was just a different beast. Well, we're pretty glib about when we because I'll many times a day say she's quite breathless or he's quite breathless. Um, it's, it's it's common parlance, and um, but it's been the the primary and pervasive symptom for you for 13, 14 years now, mm -hmm. yes? Yeah. So can you, are you able to say to me what that feels like? Well, I, th I think this is where philosophy comes in handy. Uh, what it feels like is it doesn't feel like you're in control. And I think that's the big difference, that when you're running for the bus, you're not thinking, <coughs> you know, I might just, you know, drop unconscious. I mean, I think you... I think it has to do probably with kind of oxygen desaturation, but it's just this feeling that um, you'll never be able to stop it. And it is, it's funny because now there's uh, uh, lots of neuroscientific work, a lot. There's, a li there's more neuroscientific work about what they call the breathless brain. And uh, neuroscientists like Cal Pattinson in Oxford are trying to understand what happens in the brain when we take this you know, deceptively simple word, breathlessness, which is actually made <coughs> up of, of course, you know, sensory and perceptual and interoceptive data, but also it's made up of our expectations and our past experiences. And I think one thing that happens, the way it's changed its meaning for me, is that after lots and lots of experiences of failure and of trying things and not being able to do them and of not being able to keep up and of being caught out with, you know, running out of oxygen in the middle of something, and you, you, you just start associating so much sadness and anxiety with it that it just turns into a, a beast that kind of dominates your life and so when you say actually as a <clears throat> you know that in that point tipping from looking at things as a pure philosopher well no that's the wrong word in your know, pre-LAM existence when you went you went from being less interested in the nature of reality as to how reality is experienced and felt that's what we're talking about when we're talking about phenomenology, yes? Yeah, absolutely. So, so tell me about phenomenology and why that's a, why it's important. Um, so phenomenology is a philosophical method developed by primarily Edmund Husserl in the early part of the 19th century uh, in, in Europe. 
Um, and I think it's quite interesting. We had such an interesting morning. Uh, I think the other minds problem came up at least twice, as far as I noticed. And it's a really, it's a really, um, it's a non-starter for for phenomenologists. Um, for, and that's for two reasons. So the other minds problem is this question that has come up in philosophy over and over again. Um, I see you, you know. Um, so so if I if I pinched your your ankle and you cried out in pain, how do I know that you're, there's really somebody in there actually feeling pain? And there's no good answer given the philosophical framework that s some philosophers use, which says, well, I, have, I only have access to my internal world and I don't have any access to yours, so, so you're, a, you're a closed, you're a mystery to me or you're unreachable in some way. Um, but then phenomenologists like, like Husserl and, and, and later on Heidegger, um, said the opposite. They said, well, I look at you and I can see in your face, in your eyes, in your, in your bodily posture that you're, you're like me. It's, it's, it's what we called empathy. I mean, it's, it's more complicated, but um, this is sort of in a nutshell. And this idea that I look at you and I know that you're not the same object. You're not like that chair. You're not like that table. You're not inert. You, you, we are physical matter. Um, but you're, you're organized in a way that's similar to mine. So I'm not going to look at you and think, oh, here's an object, oh, it's a person. I will look at you and I, I will immediately have this recognition that you're a fellow consciousness. Mm. Um, so the important thing for phenomenologists is that we have perceptions of reality that we, we can call phenomena. Things appear to us in particular ways. So you appear to me as human. I don't have to kind of deduce that you're human from <coughs> your physiology or anything else. I just know that you are immediately. Um, and what phenomenologists are interested in is in asking the question, what happens when consciousness meets a world? This is the most general way okay. of, of putting it. What happens to me or you or anybody else when they encounter the world? In what ways do we interact with it, in what ways do we understand it, in what ways do we, um, do we master it? And so the ex human experience is really fundamental to all that. And how does it... So in itself, that sounds interesting and, and fascinating, but what force does it have in affecting? Because one of your prime... One of, one of what changed in you was thinking, well, here's all this, here's all this stuff on the page in philosophy textbooks in two dimensions... Philosophy, if it's going to have any use in the world, it's to help us live well. Yeah. How does phenomenology, other than um, doing, doing, as you, doing what you said it does, actually impact on helping us then? What is it, what's its force? I would say the first thing it does is it helps us describe our experiences. And um, no. we've heard, or we heard this morning, lots of different experiences and... Um, and I think if you think of, about the experience of illness in particular, it's very confusing, it's very overwhelming, it's very emotional. Um, I mean, you know, p people's lives are turned upside down. It's, it's an irrevocable thing. So it doesn't just give you tools to describe that experience, which is in itself very, very important, but it also gives you tools to discern and order that experience in ways that I found enormously helpful. I thought, okay, if I can use phenomenology to make sense of this catastrophe that's happened to me, that'll, that'll enable me to, to move forward. It helps you explain the experience to yourself and make sense of it. 
Exactly. And then <clears throat> through that also explain it to others. And, and when you say others, are some of those others healthcare professionals? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think the, um, the thing that's always struck me um, is some, I give talks to, to health professionals and afterwards very often people say to me, I never knew that it felt like that or I never knew that you could see things this way as a patient. And I, I kind of think it must be such an odd experience where you sit and you see patients all day and yet their experience is so distant from yours. It's, it's almost, I mean, again, phenomenology I think is really helpful in thinking about the, the clinical encounter as one in which you come with your, you know, you didn't have time to grab a coffee, you're late, you've got, I don't know, 17 other patients to see. And I've, and I've come to you and I've prepared all month for this. I've been waiting all month for you to tell me what's going to happen to me. Um, but you've only got 12 minutes. And it's such a, there, there is so much misunderstanding, there's so much asymmetry, there's so, so, such profound differences between the, the worlds as they meet that I think, yeah, phenomenology can be really useful for articulating that as well. And how is that, just give me an example of how that articulation goes then with a healthcare professional, or perhaps without, and I'm not trying to sensationalise this, but perhaps by, at the beginning of your diagnosis, what kind of encounters did you have where you were perhaps struck by that absence on our part? Um, so, uh, going back to the theme of children, the first thing I was told uh, as, a, as a kind of, and oh, and by the way, you won't be able to have children. And that was just kind of left. And I was, I was 35. It wasn't, you know, um, it was a big, big deal for me, huge deal. And that was just kind of left handing, hanging, as in this is just even one of the minor things you have to deal with. Um, there was a lot of focus on numbers. What's your FEV1 doing? What's your FEC? What's your DLCO? What's this ratio and that ratio? Um, whereas, in, in, in fact, there's things like the six-minute walk test that really, really, I think, reveals a lot of information. Um, and it's also a number, but it's also... Um, it's actually the most fun lung function test you can do because you're actually walking <laughs> rather than sitting and kind of blowing into a tube. Um, there was a lot of lack of acknowledgement, the kind of, um, you know, next, and you'd walk in and you'd talk to somebody. And I would say, and this is, these are, I'm thinking of two very old school physicians in particular, there was, there was heartlessness, um, particularly in the way in which they dealt with my parents who were just they were just kind of blown away by the whole thing. Uh, and, all, and all of these things, I mean, do they necessarily accompany an, a biomedical or naturalistic worldview about medicine? I, I, I don't, they're, not, they're not in any way necessarily attached to it, but they end up being the kind of contingent partners of, <clears throat> I think, a biomedical framework that focuses a lot on the physiological dysfunction, plus the other constraints of a big bureaucratic healthcare system. Yeah, it converges. Lack of time, yeah. lack of, you know, uh, lack of resources, people in a rush, uh, maybe issues to do with, with training. So, you know, what I try to do in my, you know, very limited way is to say, is to just describe these experiences and say it, it didn't need to be like that. And you talk about naturalism there. So when you talk about disease, that's a naturalistic framework as opposed yep. to illness, exactly. which is the phenomenon of it, or the experience of it. Yeah. Well, phenomenology offers that distinction yeah. between okay. disease and illness. And of course, what's really um, extraordinary in the way you articulate it, 
in your book, Illness, is that health can align itself with illness, as understood through phenomenology, but disease is almost counter to health. Well, I think the one thing that's probably really familiar to anybody in this room who's had anything to do with chronic illness is, is this idea that when you've got periods of relative stability, you can have experiences of wellness within, within the illness. And I think that was, that was an insight that um, I, really, I really developed and thought about a lot at the time, because I thought, you're just given this diagnosis, and then everything associated with it is, is all bad. And they give you all these BLF leaflets about you know, what to do if you've got a cold, and you know, um, various other things. And there's, there's, there's no silver lining whatsoever. Um, and I was really interested in how you can, you can articulate unanticipated but positive outcomes of illness. For example, um, you know, experience of resilience, um, experiencing edification through one's experiences, um, and experiencing this wellness within being. And I know sometimes I walk around with the oxygen and, and people say, people who don't know me, I, I can see that they, they look at me and they're so worried and thinking, um, you know, what's going on there? And just recently we were up in uh, Scotland for a holiday and went to a Cayley. And I thought, I, thought I, I, I really want to join in. I, I really want to, I know this will kind of be a bit weird for a lot of other people, so I kind of half joined in. I wasn't very successful at it, as you can imagine. Um, but people looked really alarmed. And I thought, but, but for me, it's really nice. What, why, th there's just this sense that this, this is all darkness and doom, and there's no recognition that actually people survive for kind of incredibly long periods of time with various really serious conditions and still, you know, have a go at least at, you know, having, having a good time. But when you describe um, how, <clears throat> in a way, illness can um, allow and perhaps even um, generate that sense of fortitude and moments of enchantment and you're being alive to them, mm -hmm. is that something that's particular to a personality such as yours, which is self-evidently remarkable, or is, there, is that some... Cause also, there will be very real fear, and that, that balance is yeah. difficult. And some individuals, the fear, and I would imagine, I, I don't know how I would be if I was unwell, but the fear might be overwhelming. It's a, it's a, funny, it's a funny thing. I mean, the, the, the terror is there. But, but I think the terror is there for people in other existential moments all the time anyway. I mean, I'm sure you must think about it a lot too, right, in your line of business. <clears throat> and I think the thing to do with the terror is to is to give it its time and its place and to say, I'm going to confine this terror and I will obtain and I will hang on to the sense of normalcy even through, even through everything. Um, so my, my next challenge at some point is, is going to be the whole um, uh, uh, experience of... of being on the waiting list for a lung transplant, mm. which is, which is really awful, um, it, and what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to just seek ways to do it, without succumbing to the, to the awfulness. The awfulness of the waiting list. The awfulness of the waiting. The awfulness of the false alarms when you get called up yes. and then it doesn't happen, and then the awfulness of not knowing what the outcome is going to be like. Can we so, talk? Sorry, I'm interrupting yeah. you. No, so, so I think it's just it's just so fundamental to contain the terror, but to also not trying to eradicate it, to say, well, it is terrible. It is really terrible to get sick and then die. It's, you know, so leaving all these things behind and, and all the worries you've got. But again, it's, um, 
I don't know. It's, it's not as simple as seeing the full half, but it's really, for me, it was an incredible effort and still is of just not just seeing the full half because it wasn't really there, but just cultivating it and seeing, trying to articulate in my writing these things that I think health professionals often don't see or maybe they don't enter into the medical consultation or maybe they're, in, they're somewhere in there, but they're not in the medical notes. Um, so, so, you know, my notes don't say um, she's managed to compartmentalize terror in an effective way. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's, 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 not, it's not in my notes, but it's definitely, um, for me, an achievement to just, just think this is how it is and it's still going to be okay. And when I say it's still going to be okay, I don't mean that I'm naively thinking that, you know, necessarily there will be a happy ending or a good outcome to all this. But what I mean by it will be okay is that I will feel a certain element of calm and control in the face of all the trials that are, that are yet to come. We, we were talking yesterday about um, <clears throat> therapeutic progress of medicine um, and the limits of it as well, and what the tipping point is between intervention mm -hmm. and allowing a palliative care, comfortable death, etc., and how difficult it is to reach judgment at that tipping point, how personal it is, not just to the recipient of care, but to the care provider, and how we're not very good at having political conversations about this on a wider scale mm -hmm. around the goals of medicine. Yeah. You, in, in illness, talk very um, clearly about, as a philosopher, about the fear of death, mm -hmm. and the human fear of death and uncertainty. Can you just say a bit about that? As a patient, we were going to ask you. I was yeah. going to ask you what we thought of the word patient, but we might come to that. But anyway, okay, I'm probably not the best candidate for that because um, before I was sick, I did my MA thesis and my PhD thesis, and they were both on the concept of death. Right. So, so I, I think it always seemed to me as the most peculiar thing that that we do as humans that we <clears throat> we live and you know we 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 go places and do things and. It, it throw ourselves into projects and goals and so on, but then we kind of we kind of know that ultimately that's 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 coming. So I think this idea that really attracted me to working on this in my PhD is this question of how to how to live well as finite, which mm. is essentially this, a similar question or a sister question to how to live well with with illness. Mm. And by well, I don't mean being happy all the time or doing lots of cheerful, fun things. But I mean, again, having the, the, your, your existential space organized in a way that neither evades nor obsesses over that, that mm. just says, this is how it is. And therefore, the, the, your presence, you talk about living authentically. Yeah. What does that mean, the authentic, authentic, authentically with regards to the present moment? Well, I mean, it, depends on who you, who you ask. Which of the philosophers? I mean, I, I, what I, one thing I do in the book is it's quite eclectic because I draw on a number of philosophers. Um, I'm asking <coughs> you what you think, I yeah. suppose. Uh, I think living authentically means living as finite, is thinking I will still throw myself into these projects and I will still have ambitions and I will still do the things that are meaningful to me. But at the same time, I will always know that the, the specter of my finitude is in each and every one of these things. So, you know, instead of, I mean, 
I think, I think one line of thought is to say, well, death comes at the end, so what's the point of everything else? It's kind of the Woody yeah. Allen line, as it were. And I think quite the opposite, that the, the meaning comes in part because, I don't know, at least I kind of always feel I'm in a rush because there's so many <laughs> things to do and see and write and speak about and, um, and do that it's, it, it's just, um, it's, it's not the cause of paralysis, it's the cause of, of activity. But at the same time, I think you have to be respectful of, of the fact that it's all very tentative. Fragile, yeah. Yes. And you were ambivalent, <clears throat> I, I felt to me you were ambivalent for perhaps those reasons about, at one stage, as to whether or not to pursue the possibility of a lung transplant. Yeah, uh, well, I'm still ambivalent. I made the mistake of uh, watching a documentary about heart transplants, and the thing that really got me is, so, so there's this, these surgeons, and um, it's very com they're, they're very sick patients, and the hearts were kind of fused onto the, to the sternum. It was all very complicated. But anyway, they get the old heart out, and I thought, surely they keep it as a kind of option B in case things don't work out, but they just kind of chuck it in a, sort of in a, in a bowl, and, that, and then that's it, that's finished. And then they put the new organ in and it either works or it doesn't. Um, and I think going into surgery, knowing that this is, a, this is a serious option, I think that's gonna be really hard. That's gonna be really hard. Can I ask just in the last couple of minutes, I, I don't know if there's something you, you feel you can easily answer, but what the fact of illness has meant in your relationship, not just to death and life, but to the possibility of love? And what, has, has, that, has that changed as a result of you being unwell? Yeah, I think that, you know, talking about the, the terror, that's the terror amplified by a million. So um, after much deliberation and discussion and um, uh, advice seeking, uh, my partner and I went on to, to adopt two children. And obviously that is, the paramount question. Um, and I remember another woman who was very sick who said to me, I only had my transplant for my children. And I, I think that's a, that's a true statement for, well, that's, that's part, of, part of a complicated kind of deliberation. Um, I think there's, I mean, Tara and well, terror is the kind of flip side of love because terror is the fear of not having the things that you want and cherish and, and need. And the terror of not existing, we talked about this, is, is, um, is the terror of not being around for when your children need you or um, when things happen. It's the, 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 the terror of this, this kind of ultimate closure of these, this horizon of experience that phenomenologists have talked about so much. And so, and I may be asking you to repeat yourself, but, and the response to that particular terror of loss is what? Exhaustion, I guess. I think the response to the terror <clears throat> in some ways is you let it run its course and you think, I'm finished with okay. you for and today. Also, yeah. 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 Um, <clears throat> again, I, th I think it's it's just this conflict is just is just how things yes. are once yeah. you've 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 got this kind of 
I mean, lamb is quite a beast. Once you've got a beast living with you, then, then it kind of comes with you everywhere. Yes, and so having it, but living anyway, concurrent to it. Not just anyway, but living with. Well, yes. um, and again, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a dreadful thing. It's a curse. I abhor the, 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 the whole culture industry of, of bright-siding mm. and, you know, uh, uh, you know, teddy bears and pink ribbons and, and uh, positive thinking. And I really, I think it's, it, it does a lot of damage to people because it lacks that ambivalence. Right. But I think that, you know, living, living with the beast is the, you know, it, 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 it's a challenge. Um, and it, some, it sometimes vanishes for a few seconds or a few minutes. And, and sometimes it's, it's very much there as with, you know, the planning for the, for the transplant. But I, I, think, I think it's there anyway, mm. if you see what I mean. Maybe not as yeah. obviously. That's all we have time for. Have a carol. Thank you.